everybody for being here on Practice Pedagogy Podcast, episode 58. In this episode, we host Jess Mitchell. Yes, the Jess Mitchell. She is the Senior Manager of Research and Design at Inclusive Design Research Center in Ontario, Canada. It was an honor to sit down and have a chat with her. Uh, Sit back, relax, enjoy. We'll catch you on the other side. One. Hey everybody, welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad that you've taken the time to uh, be with us today. It is my honor to have Jess Mitchell on the show. And uh, I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time, but it took me a long time to work up the courage to, to ask you, Jess. And uh, I'm so thankful that you said yes and, uh, and that you're here. And then we have this next little bit to, to chat about you and disrupting education. And, uh, That's just nuts. Uh, <laughs> you would have to have courage to ask me to do something I would so happily do, but it means I'm doing something wrong. But um, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. So Jess, for those who may not know who you are, how about you give us a little bit of background into who you are, what you do? Yeah, so my name is Jess Mitchell. I'm, uh, full disclosure, an American living north of the border in Canada very happily. Um, I work at the Inclusive Design Research Center in um, that's located at OCAD University in downtown Toronto. And I have for, I think it's been quite a while now, well over a decade, which is the longest I've ever spent anywhere. Um, and um, I made up my own job title. So it's just about as meaningless as can be. But I call myself... <laughs> I call myself a senior manager of research and design, sort of a play on research and development, um, because what we do is spend our time practicing inclusive design. And I say practicing because I don't think that there are experts in inclusive design. There are practitioners. And I feel quite lucky to have the privilege of being able to be a practitioner, spend my time doing this and honing what I think is a pretty incredible skill and um, perspective to sort of gaze through uh, to see the world. Yeah. I hope that that says something about who I am. Oh, I think that's great. I didn't, I didn't uh, know that you were a transplanted American. Oh, well, that, thank you. Maybe I hide it well. <laughs> you do. <laughs> well, you do. That's awesome. Good. Uh, so how did you get into inclusive design? Like what was your, what was your doorway into that? It's kind of a fascinating, well, to me, fascinating trajectory because I don't think it's the sort of thing that um, you you would either be able to easily reproduce or it would necessarily be desirable to reproduce. Um, I was always a generalist in terms of my interests. I had a lot of different interests and they didn't seem to have a point of commonality. So Academically, I spent my time in the land of theory, social and political theory. I was really concerned with ethics, really concerned with why we do things the way we do them and exploring sort of the history, the logic and the 
and the uh, righteousness or lack thereof of the way the world works. And then I, um, at some point, found a nice pairing of the world of theory with very few answers to the world of technology, where things were so immediate and so tangible. And I, I found the two work nicely together for me. And um, it, it never really fit into a particular job description. And then at one sort of magical point in my life, um, a, a man by the name of Brian Cantwell Smith, who's the former Dean of the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto, um, came to Duke University in North Carolina and was a professor of philosophy and new technology. I said, well, holy what? cow. <laughs> what? You might be somebody who doesn't fit also. <laughs> I want to not fit with you. Um, yeah. And it was just such a kind of a, one of those kismet moments where it just fit and worked. And, um, you know, he became my mentor once he left Duke and came back to uh, Toronto. Every few years, he would give me a call and uh, try to scoop me, try to find out what I was doing and whether or not he could convince me to come. And then the timing was right. Um, and uh, unfortunately, what he was trying to scoop me for wasn't quite working out. But as fate would have it, the person who was on the call with him was you to Trevor Honest. And in fantastic you to form, she said, well, if you can't take that job, what about working for me? <laughs> so uh, she scooped me from the scooping. And the rest, <laughs> as they say, is history. Um, She's extraordinary. Uh, she she is also a misfit, and she has for over twenty five years collected misfits and um, done some extraordinary thinking and doing and work to move um, our thinking forward around accessibility, around inclusion, and around disability and around technology, and sort of following the history of the Inclusive Design Research Center, uh, it, it tells a story of the trajectory um, socially and academically and professionally of how these um, concepts have changed over time. And so it wasn't designed to begin with. It was, it was called the Adaptive Technology Research Center. It was very much about ATs. And as the web sort of opened more, YouTube was on the front pushing for openness, pushing for open standards, pushing for on the level of policy, policies that specifically, um, you know, at the ISO level, um, uh, sort of encouraged and nurtured the notion of openness as a way to be inclusive and fair and to create a space where there's justice in this new space of the web and technology. So as the group evolved, you know, Utah was pushing for doing things like um, building tools that were open instead of expensive adaptive technologies that required people to spend a ton of money to do the same thing that everybody else was doing. And then be stuck in, in this um, arrangement with a company where they're paying exorbitant costs for the original um, application, say, and then they have to pay for updates constantly. So she saw the open web as a way to obviate that horrible cycle of 
of further exclusion and economic um, disparity. And in doing so, started building uh, uh, tools on the open web that anybody could use. And it sort of blew open this whole path. And in doing that, she started pushing for something that was called, she called participatory design. And this was, you know, before it was hip and cool. And then she started talking about, wait a minute, co-design, also before it was hip and cool. So what's the reason that, I, that I've been at the Inclusive Design Research Center for so long is because we're constantly evolving and pushing and changing the way that we approach this work and the way that we do this work. And so it's never the same thing. We're, it, it's, it's very much emergent and moving and, and um, being excited about where things are going and nudging them further. So um, it's become about design because, um, as you can imagine, inclusion is a thread that goes through everything we do, regardless of the industry that you're in. Um, inclusion is relevant. So it's the horizontal to all the verticals, I say. Um, and in, in my world, and in the space that I like to spend my time, I like to think about inclusive design and education. And that's the, that's the long of it. <laughs> <laughs> so do you find yourself working with uh, quote unquote misfits all the time? Yeah. So yes and no. I mean, I like to, I think, be the misfit <laughs> and um, charge into a bank, for example, and say, hey, what if you thought of this completely differently? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I've said that I'm, I'm a contrarian, but I come at it honestly. I don't do it for sport. I do it because I think that we need to question more things in our world. Um, so I'm, I'm quite fond of working with anybody, meeting them where they are. And the hope is um, sort of ruining their vision a bit and saying um, or telling stories that they can't unhear, you know, ruining their hearing, um, telling them, showing them things they can't unsee. And in, in doing that, hopefully shifting the focus of how we do things and having an opportunity to um, shake it up and disrupt it a bit. So how do you, how do you navigate somebody through those kind of uneasy waters? Cause I'm, you know, you're using language that, that, that quite frankly is language that is not used often enough, I think, in the sense that you come in and you're disrupting people's vision and, and, and getting them to see things that they don't want or they can't forget very quickly. That must be, that must be shocking to, to most people. So how, how do you navigate them through that process? That's a great question. Um, I actually wrote a thing about this and I compared it to making pancakes. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> in my experience, the first pancake is the, is the messiest one. It's the throwaway, right? Oh, yeah, and totally. sort of as, as the pan gets more evenly hot and sort of hotter, things get better. When I do this work, um, I've noticed some, I guess they're patterns or some, some things that are in common. It can be quite disruptive at first, but at first I find that people get really excited and it feels as though they're almost liberated. They find a freedom in it um, that they, they don't have to do things in the boring way that they assumed they had to do, you know, at the bank or 
or you know um, in in their uh, in their business, and they can rethink things and and engage a more creative side of themselves. And that's sort of phase one. That's that messy pancake where there's a lot of enthusiasm about pancakes and it just it doesn't go so well. Then the second sort of phase, and I have to in full disclosure, I like things in threes. Um, so everything <laughs> that I seem to come up with has a three. So the second phase is sort of where there is the clash with reality. There's the enthusiasm that meets what feels like immovable policy or immovable practices or an immovable upstream problem that, you know, the senior vice president of um, boxes and glitches is not going to move on. And then um, in the in the sort of third phase or third step of this pancake making, there there's almost a, a quietude where somebody comes to a place where maybe it's a swing back from the kind of revolutionary feelings of the first phase, but it's uh, okay. How can we change something small? How can we start the process of um, of disruption in just a small way? Um, what's interesting about this is that it happens over some period of time. You can't, you can't force this. In some cases, I've worked with people and they've come back six months later after the, you know, phase one. In other cases, we had a company that wanted to work with us and they literally came back a year later. Um, and in that year, they had done a lot of restructuring internally. They had um, sort of nurtured a bottom-up and a top-down commitment to inclusion within the organization. And this isn't just inclusion in terms of hiring. It's, it's inclusion in terms of, you know, are your accessibility bugs blockers in your application? It, are, are you tolerating in exclusion in what you're shipping? Um, and that's a tough one for a lot of companies to sort of turn on a dime and change. So, What's interesting to me is that this truly is a process and it is changing perspective. And you can change somebody's perspective with an aha moment, day of, and those are really powerful opportunities. But what I'm kind of more fascinated by is what's much harder to measure, which is um, what's the longer term impact of that shift in perspective. I had a colleague, Kevin Spilaric, who said, it's almost as if you want to take an MRI of their brain before you talk to them mm -hmm. and then an MRI <laughs> at some point later and you want to see it. You can't see it. Um, I think that what you can do is uh, you can talk to people and you can, you can experience the change in them. That yeah. makes sense. No, it seems totally very sense. abstract, but. Um, no, that's cool. I, I'm living there. That's great. Um, yeah. Cause I track with you in the sense that if you could take a snapshot in time today, uh, yeah. six months from now, a year from now, even three years from now, they may not see the full trajectory of that change, but, exactly. you've, but you've captured those moments in time where they can go back and look and go, Oh my goodness, we started here. Oh, exactly. that's, that's terrible. And then, but look where we're going. And then they may, they may see a pattern of iteration of prototype tests, prototype tests, prototype tests, right? And maybe it's not even an, oh, that's horrible, because I do this in my, in my teaching as well. I ask them first class to create a baseline with a number of questions. What are their intentions? What are their goals? You know, what, what are the things that they're thinking about at the beginning? 
because I'm also kind of fascinated by this notion of, you know, when you don't know something and then you know it, it's almost as if you can't remember not knowing it. I think the only way we can get at that is through reflection. And it's not something that we do professionally. It's not something that we do personally that much. And it's not something that we necessarily do academically. And so in my courses, to me, the most fascinating thing is to look at those reflections over the, over the term, because it's, it's, it's almost the closest insight you can get to somebody learning authentically. They know something one week they didn't know the week before. And to me, that, that is the most, that's the purest learning outcome. Yeah. That brings the deepest smile to, to a person's soul, I think, in the sense that you yeah. can, and you may be the only one that sees it and cause they may not see it until later when they leave the class. Right. And I think, like you said, there's an aha moment for the people that are learning it, but I think there's also an aha moment for us that are facilitating that process where yeah. we're seeing 30, almost 30 separate Petri dishes in the same experiment. And I, I don't want to call education experiment so much, but it's, it's like you're watching these 30 little Petri dishes and they're all changing in their own pace, but together as you move down as a class, that's, that's very cool. Yeah. Do you, do you practice reflection at all? Do you have a reflective practice yourself? Oh my God, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm sort of pathologically reflection, okay. reflecting all the time, I guess. And, and this is where, you know, is it, is it a practice or is it something that's built into your brain? And, and I don't know. I mean, this is just something that fascinates me. Um, looking backwards feels like a great way to understand more about what's coming. And so, you know, back to my sort of interest in ethics and in why we're doing things the way we're doing in terms of the world. I live the same way in terms of my life. You know, why, why did I make the choices I made? Let's look at the history of this. And so there is a part of this that is uh, deeply personal, uh, deeply about reflection and uh, deeply about, um, you know, understanding the past to, to move forward to the future. I, I think that it's grounded fundamentally in what I think is a vision problem that we have. We're able to see stuff in front of us. We're able to see some things behind us, but there's a limit to what we can see, right? This is the, we forget things or we rewrite history. Um, but we're having, I think we're, we're not well equipped. Maybe it's biologically, I don't know, um, to see too far into the future and to see how our behavior has an impact on that. Um, so I think we have a vision problem that, that it's almost like there's a myopathy that is a certain um, radius around us and seeing too far back or too far forward is difficult. And that worries me. Uh, so I guess that that's the reflection uh, that I'm always doing is bouncing around into all of those edges of that radius. So you wrote a blog post, uh, a couple of them actually, part one and part two about disrupting education. And I read part one and part two. Part one really grabbed my attention because it's, it's, it's something that I've wanted to do and, and have messed around with a little bit in my own yeah. practice of, of, of teaching. 
Um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the impetus of that, that scenario, and then maybe some spinoffs to that blog post that you wrote? Yeah. I mean, um, I wish it were the sort of thing that I had a, a well laid out plan for. <laughs> it, I didn't, it just sort of happened. Um, I was teaching a course last winter, so a year ago now. And I was sitting outside the classroom on the first evening the class was meeting. And I was thinking, you know, this is a really big moment, that first moment. How's this going to go? And I didn't know how I wanted to do it. I know I wanted to. Uh, do things differently because fundamentally in those first moments, I think that unfortunately a bunch of dynamics are reified and without questioning, without concern for the impact that has on what comes next in terms of teaching and learning. And so, you know, the classroom is set up for me to stand in the front and the students to all sit and stare at me. So I wandered into the class, I, you know, I got there early and wandered into the class and sat in the back at a chair and watched everybody sort of filter in. And I have a tendency to be underdressed um, for the occasion. So I was wearing my hoodie and a pair of jeans and had my backpack with my laptop in it. And I was watching everybody come in and the class started at seven. And the closer we got to seven, the more the class sort of started to chatter and have this kind of bubbly energy. I think that there was a, is anybody going to show up and teach this class? <laughs> or are so, we get a free block? <laughs> I took very seriously the network time protocol um, sync on my phone. And as soon as it clicked over to seven, I stood up and was slowly walking to what was inevitably the place that I was supposed to be, which was the front of the class. But as, as I was walking up there, I stopped to the side and, you know, half genuinely, because I'd never been to the room before, I, I stopped and asked a young woman, is this, is this UX307A, which is the class number? And she said, she said yeah. I said, oh, okay, thanks. And I continued walking to the front of the class and she watched and the people who were around her sort of watched and, you know, I put my backpack down on the desk. You know, there are these inevitable things you have to do. Like you're carrying a backpack. You've got to put it somewhere. Yeah. So now I'm in the position, right? I'm staring from the front of the class out to everybody sitting in their seats. And in that moment, there are all of these dynamics at play. Everybody starts to get a little quiet. They start to look up and start to sort of squint at me. Is this the person? And so I said, and who am I? And they got very quiet. And then one student said, you're the, you're the professor. And I said, well, how do you know? Why, why do you know that? So at that moment, what I wanted us to sort of um, explore is all the assumptions that we make when we walk into that room. I walked in through the back door rather than the front door because the front door puts me right in the front of the class. And it's these little subtle moments where you establish the power, right? You walk in and you put your bag on the desk. Well, you're the professor. From that moment on, there's no question. I wanted us to question. And I wanted us to question, why am I up here and you're there? You know, and this is the, back to the, there are no experts in this. There are practitioners. Because the difference between me and my students is I have many more years of experience practicing this. 
I have a lot of stories to tell. I have a lot of experiences, right? Um, they were sort of shocked, I think. And many of them talked about this in their reflections for the whole term. They had never had that experience where something that they had taken for granted for so many years, and that was the dynamic between professor and student, had been disrupted. We used that as a way to start the class to talk about form and function and how architecturally the way the room was set up determined how we were going to interact with each other and had an impact on us. Um, and it, it sort of fit beautifully because as fate would have it, um, the class has a little plaque that says how many people can safely fit in the room and it's determined by the fire marshal. And that basically limits the size of the class, not the pedagogical uh, you know, questions or the approach, but the fire marshal determines the size of the class. And then you know, we took a look at the seats and they were directional seats. So they had right-handed desks or left-handed desks. And we started talking about lefties and a couple of people in the class sort of smirked and revealed themselves to be lefties, <laughs> which was a, a great entree to talking about difference and diversity and who feels welcome when they walk into a room and who has to look around to try to find the lefty desk that somebody in procurement decided to sprinkle in there based on the statistics of how many people would be lefties. So many of the people who walked into the room walked in and gave barely a thought to where to sit. Well, these lefties had to decide, am I going to contort my body to fit into a righty desk or am I going to hunt out the lefty desk? Anyway, it, it, it served as a really nice starting point um, for questioning the room, for creating the kind of dynamic that I wanted to have with the students, um, where I wanted them to question and feel as though they're very much part of this exploration with me and where we could um, play around with this while I still had to stand in the front with my bag on the desk. I wonder if, uh, they, if they did any kind of reflecting on that during the term with any other classes that they were in. They right? did. They did. I mean, like I said, I think that of all of the assessments or assignments, I really call them deliverables, that I ask the students to do, I think the most important are the are the reflections that I ask them to do weekly. I get so much exciting stuff. They start to talk about how it feels to be in large lecture classes uh, based on that experience in that first space. And then, you know, as you can imagine, it goes further and further. We start to explore doors and how doors are designed, either let you in or not let you in. Um, one week, uh, there were a whole bunch of police outside the classroom. And one of the students said, are we safe here? And that served as the beginning of that class because I said, wow, that's really interesting. Let's stop for a second. You see police and you wonder, am I safe? Which opened up this enormous conversation about uh, social justice, about design of um, uh, you know, uh, uh, racial discrimination, about all of these really big topics. It turned out the police were there because there was another lecture just in the next room that was um, a pretty polarizing figure who was uh, talking about basically how inclusion <laughs> is a joke. And so oh, here no we way. Were. Yeah. So here we were in this classroom 
doing the hard work of building this community of practice around being inclusive. And next door, there was there was somebody who required the police to protect them. So that was a really rich class. Yeah, we had a we had a grand time. Yeah. Has, has that uh, has that kind of have you done that again um, with any other classes? So I'm doing that again this term. Boy, is it different. Okay. Uh, COVID obviously to understate it. Yeah. <laughs> Changed everything. Well, yeah. Kind of. <laughs> So what was amazing about that class is we were in that that funny semester where everything had to end online at great disruption. But what was wonderful is that we had already established such a a sort of open and um, inclusive and caring community with each other that when we jumped over to Zoom for those last few classes, everybody was there. Everybody had their uh, video on. First class, of course, was hey, let's disrupt this, this space. You know, we started with chairs and doors. What about Zoom? Uh, so here was a moment where we were talking about how it impacted, again, the power dynamics. Who's host? Who gets to share their screen? Who's muted their voice, quite literally? Um, and I mean, we talked about it from a feminist perspective. You know, feminists fought for years for people to have a voice. And then here we are. All of us sitting in Zoom, muted, literally muting ourselves. And who feels the power to unmute and to speak? Because in conversation, we have, naturally, we will interrupt each other. We'll say something like, wow, or aha, yeah, or we'll agree. You lose a lot of that. So this term has been really tough because and one of the first things that I think these classes require is establishing um, the comfort with being brave in a space where students have been taught make yourself as invisible as you possibly can. You know, mute your voice, sit in the back corner, don't participate. And Zoom does not make it easy for us. We've got um, a lot of people in the class, which makes it hard too, but we're working through it. Um, to compare this to last semester is just a completely different beast. Like an apple and a rhinoceros. <laughs> they couldn't be more different, but we're working through it in some interesting ways and trying to question what's going on. So, you know, I showed up in the first Zoom and I said, you know, who am I? And uh, uh, they said, you know, you're just Mitchell. I said, well, how do you know that? And some of them got excited and said, well, maybe you're just a deep fake. <laughs> Others said, well, you know, I looked online and you look like the pictures that I saw. So I'm going to say that there's some sort of authentication that you had to do to get in. So we started talking about the systems that, you know, validate us and put us in the places and give us the control that we're supposed to have in space. So, yeah. D- yeah. Right. And, doesn't, and doesn't that mysteriously but almost in a scary way mesh into the whole proctorio turn it in you know surveillance police state that's going on in higher ed right now right where talk about power and evasion and who who's in control versus who who isn't right we started the class um watching a video by alfie cohen um talking about how grades basically coerce um, students and how they result in horrible learning environments. 
and horrible dynamics between profs and students. And what we do in the first three classes is we decide collectively how we're going to grade. So last night we just settled on how we're going to grade. Um, and a lot of students feel uneasy about that. Some of them, again, feel liberated. It's that, sa- it's that pancake. <laughs> so we're, we're making pancakes. <laughs> that's awesome. That's all. And that's so relatable too, right? Cause who hasn't made pancakes where the first one's just a total mess, right? It's just like, and then you're, you're swearing at your pan cause it's got all this junk in it and you got to clean it out and all that other stuff. Right. And you're like, I should have just used the cast iron. Should have just used the cast iron. <laughs> yeah. We've made a lot of pancakes in our house too. I've got four kids and they're basically all adults now and, but they're all still at home. And, and you talk about or, and, or write about these differences between your students. And my home is a little mini ecosystem of that. Like my youngest, my youngest is left-handed. Yeah. Um, And so we went to San Francisco. There's a left-handed store in San Francisco. We've Uh never seen that before, but, and she was in her element, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. She said, hey, this is just for me. This it's, makes me feel. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and, awesome. and, and she was she was all over it. And then uh, our our third has dwarfism. And so Hannah is only three feet tall, but she's 19. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, and she still she will still write about how she feels when people stare at her. Right. Yeah. And especially adults. And yeah. uh you know, and then my, my son, my oldest is a, my son and, and, you know, he's, he's smart and, you know, he played soccer and went over to Europe and saw a bunch of stuff there. And then my, my old, my oldest daughter, Naomi, she's a writer. She's, she wants to be an author. What a wonderful bunch. I mean, that's true testament to great parenting that they all have so many different interests and so many different uh, perspectives, right? We try. It's, I have a good wife too, <laughs> but, uh, it's, always uh, helps. <laughs> well, it always helps for sure. Right. But like you're saying, like it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's almost like taking every day as it comes and yeah, we have plans and yeah, we have, we have hopes and aspirations, but it's also about them and making sure that they grow into a position where they want to be. And they're not pleasing us with their lives, so to speak, as they are living out what they want to do. And I mean, that's, that's the classroom in a microcosm is teach self-actualization to teach people to have confidence in their thoughts and ideas and to nurture these sort of softer things that don't measure easily into a letter grade or an assessment. Do they? No, they don't. And, I, and even I've missed around with that, that idea of ungrading. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I teach in two different worlds too. So I'm a trades person. Yeah. Uh, and so teaching trades, uh, you can't ungrade safety because <laughs> uh, it's either, you know, you've got your hand or you don't. Um, there's, there's no middle ground. Uh, but then I also teach in the school of business. So I teach organizational behavior and yeah. leadership and, and stuff like that. And those tend to be a little more forgiving environments for the ungrading, but um Talk a little, talk a little bit more about where you are with that ungrading process. I'm I'm curious. Like, are, do you submit grades at the end of the term because the school requires you to? And and kind of what do you do in that middle ground? I do submit grades, um, but I'm a little bit of a nightmare with them. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, really? <laughs> I can't imagine that. There's never been a rule that I haven't found. I want us to poke at. Um, 
Yeah, so like I said, the first three um, meetings of the class, we determined how the grading is going to go. And, you know, it's a little bit of an unfair ask of students because they've never, in many cases, they've never been asked to come up with a grading scheme. And so from an inclusive design perspective, you know, this is equivalent to asking somebody to come to the table to think about designs that's never been invited to the table before, for whom the table is hostile, for whom the table has represented things like authoritarianism and uh, go, no, go on to the next stage or, you know, whether or not you're able to do the, the, um, the advanced work. So it is, it is an unreasonable ask to ask them to participate in that. But what I want them to experience is hopefully that things don't have to be the way they are, that we can fall into ruts of doing things because it's the way we've always done it. Um, so what I get from those conversations is a lot of students questioning what is learning for them? Why are they in the class? You know, they're paying money to go to school. What's exciting is that um, especially some of the upperclassmen um, are sort of more tuned into uh, what this means for once they've graduated, because once they're out of school, they're no grades. So if they've spent all of their time working for the grade, then what's going to happen afterwards? So they're going to have to do things like self-assessments and work. They're going to have to write reports about performance. Um, other people are going to write reports about their performance. So I struggle with it every term, to tell you the truth, because some students say that they really um, feel a lot of anxiety, not knowing how they're going to be graded. And the best I can do is say, look, ah, you know, go back to that Alfie Cohen video. I'm not interested in being an authoritarian. I'm not interested in coercion. And what I said to them last night is something that I've repeated many times. It's sort of um, going to sound boring, I think, to many people because they've heard me say it. I'm more concerned with false negatives than I am false positives. So somebody gets an A and, and they, you know, in some way don't deserve it, whatever that means. I'm not worried about that. I'm more worried about the student who, for one reason or another, maybe it's because of the way that I've structured the assessments. Uh, maybe it's because something's going on in their life, but they get a grade that's lower than what they should achieve. I, for instance, had a student who never turned in a reflection last term. Not a single one. They're supposed to turn in every week. Every single week in class, boy, did he show up. He showed up with his full self. You could, you know, once you get to know the students, you could see he's pushing himself out of his comfort zone. He's staying after class. He's asking questions. He's answering questions. He's engaging authentically with his peers. He did beautifully. What am I going to do? Give, give him a zero? No. So, um, I, I err on the side of worrying about the false negatives, not the false positives. And, and you know, just as they have to sit and, and reflect on why are they there, what does learning mean to them, I have to sit and reflect on why am I there, what does teaching mean to me, and what does it mean to give somebody a grade? I, I have no interest in being part of that authoritarian, um, coercive behavior. I want the students to 
explore and enjoy and wonder and think. And those things feel at odds with each other. And your, your comment about the trades um, is a really good one. I, I actually talked about grades quite flippantly in New Hampshire once. <laughs> the New Hampshire is not, is not necessarily so relevant, but I did talk about it in New Hampshire. And um, there was somebody there who was from, I think, a community college. And he was teaching um, a course for veterinary assistants. So, um, you know, these are people who need to be able to draw blood from an animal. They need to be able to hit a vein. And he rightly questioned me about this notion of not having grades. And I said, you know, look, you need to know if somebody can hit a vein or not. Grade that. That's a yes, no. That's a yes, you got the vein. No, you cannot get the vein. But I said to him, you know, at the end of the term, when you have three students who are applying for jobs and they ask you for recommendations, you don't write the same letter for all three. You write a letter that describes, yes, they can, that says they achieved this grade, they can hit veins, yes, yes, yes. They also can show deep empathy for owners. You know, when owners come in and they're scared about their animals, they can work with clients. They can work under pressure. They can work well on a team. That has nothing to do with the letter grade that they got. It's not necessarily even reflected in that. And so that to me, that to me sort of backs up this worry about the false negatives, not the false positives. Um, if you're in the trades, you know, measure whether somebody can make a sound, you know, a sound bridge or not. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, also, you know, um, do they work well with municipality leaders? Do they work well with the community that's around them? Where's this bridge going in? You know, if there's um, a group that should be involved that isn't involved, how inclusive are they? Um, those things are not measured or are not easily measured. And I think that those things should still be really important to us. You you raise a really good point. And I'll never forget when I first started uh, teaching in trades, uh, I ran into a, a business owner and my job at that time was to get people ready to go out into industry to find a job. And, uh, so I asked this, this, this gentleman said, so what do you, when you get a whole bunch of resumes, like when you get like 30, 40, 50 resumes, what are you really looking for? Yeah. Right. And his answer really surprised me. And, and at first I, I thought it was a little too subjective, but then he explained it. He said, I look for people who have played on sports teams. Yeah. And I'm like, and I'm like, what? And then, and then I said, okay, you got to explain this to me because, you know, I would expect you'd want us to know, you know, technical things. You'd want us to know how to uh, interpret um, certain scenarios to make sure that we're doing, you'd want us to know procedures. And he goes, yeah, that's fine. I can train all of that. I can train people to do that. What I can't train people to do is work well together. And, and when, when he said that, it's like, okay, that makes perfect sense now. And uh, it's made a big impact on the way I teach too, in the sense of, I don't care if you can answer 50 multiple choice questions or not, that that's, I really don't care about that. What I care about is, can you transfer the concept from this 
environment out into the new environment that you're going into. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that this is where teaching is actually at least two levels. It's the, what you're doing and it's the, how you're doing it and why you're doing it that way. So that's why, you know, I see the students, look, if I were to teach an inclusive design class and we weren't spend three weeks talking about how we're going to grade that, that seems like that would be disingenuous. Just, I would be a fake. Then I'd be a deep fake. Right. Um, But we have to figure out how do we do inclusion in the course where we're learning about inclusion and how to manifest that in whatever work we're doing. Yeah. I think that that's a really great, it's actually just thinking about this because there was a football player who just asked to be released from his team. That's a great example. You know, you've got these really talented players who just bounce around and have really spotty careers as a result of not being able to play on a team. Yeah. Yeah. Chemistry makes, makes all the difference in the world. Right. Do you still see a different approach? I mean, you could take the Yankees approach and just buy all the best players and stick them together on the field. Yeah. But that doesn't always guarantee you a win either. It doesn't. doesn't. And, And, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and so, I, I always watch the St. Louis Cardinals and they're a scrappy team. They usually bring unknowns into the game from triple A, double A even, and they nurture them as a team. And you take any one of those guys out of that, they're usually not a superstar, but together, oh my God, the kind of things that they can do. And I mean, you see movies like this where you put that team together and, and something magical happens. Oh, exactly. I'm I'm a... In American football, I'm a I'm a Green Bay fan, and yeah. uh, um, it, like, who wants to go to Wisconsin, Green Bay, Wisconsin, to play football? Right? Like, <laughs> you're going to the frozen tundra of the whole United States. Like, you know, if I had my choice of Florida or Wisconsin, it's not going to be that quick of a of a think, right? Like, I I know, but but when you get there, like when I haven't been there yet, it's on my bucket list to go, but you see this, like guys go there. They want to go there because it's not just about playing with Aaron Rodgers and a few other guys. It's, it's about the owners. Like they're the only team that's publicly owned in the NFL. You, you see, you see fans and, and public owners come to shovel off snow from the, from the stadium. Right. And, and there's an ethos that you convey in that, right? Exactly. That conveys just like the room conveys, you sit here and I stand there. When you see your your boss shoveling snow, that me, that's meaningful. That changes something. Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, it does. Jess, do you still feel like an intruder or an imposter in higher ed? Oh, for sure. And I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, I, <laughs> it, it's a lot easier to feel outside of something to be able to poke at it. I think that if I fully bought into the enterprise, um, I would worry. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me. And, uh, this has been a great conversation. I just have a couple more questions. I call them the fab five. Okay. And, and, uh, they're, they're designed as rapid fire questions, but they don't need to be rapid fire answers. Okay. Well, I'm long winded, Tim, and I'm fairly (laughs) nervous about these fab five. So here we go. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Ready? What's your favorite food? Oh, I don't know that I have a favorite food. Um, yeah. 
I'm very bad at the Fab Five already. <laughs> Let's just say pizza. Everybody loves pizza, right? Pizza, pizza. Yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, what are you watching on uh, for TV shows or what's your favorite movie? So we have just um, watched the full series of Schitt's Creek for a second time. Um, and in part, it's because we have, we have come to such a narrow place of what we can tolerate watching. 2020 was a tough year. Uh, we didn't want to watch any tough TV. So we have spent our time between Brian Cox, um, The Planets, um, anything with David Attenborough in it and Schitt's Creek. And we are happy to be just in there. <laughs> just in there. Yeah, that's good. That's good. It's good to filter. <laughs> it's good to filter. Awesome. What's your favorite band or genre of music? Oh, this is a tough one too. Uh, stuff that I used to listen to, I don't listen to at all anymore, which is sort of interesting, but there's something to that music that um, came out in the summer of 1997 or thereabouts. It was a kind of a big year for music. Um, I'm not sure it's my favorite, but uh, I'm quite fond of things that were coming out then. That's when, uh, I guess, Pearl Jam 10. Was it 97? Yeah, yeah. 96, 97, Pearl Jam, 96, Soundgarden. Yeah. Exactly. All of the, the grunge stuff that was going on there. I yeah. still I still think that was kind of a magical time for music. Yeah. Nirvana, that whole era. But having said that, again, I've been listening to uh, Dan Gibson's Solitudes and Appalachian, you know, background music. <laughs> so, <laughs> nothing but nice, soothing <laughs> sounds in this house right now. The other issue, Tim, is um, I'm a new parent. So we have a 13-month-old. Okay. okay. And so that changes everything, right? Your tolerance. Yeah. Um, I'm also listening to the Bare Naked Ladies children's album, Snack nice. Spot. <laughs> it's actually a really brilliant album. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. Although I have to say my youngest my youngest daughter likes heavy metal just like I do. Oh, cool. And we're the only two in the family that love it. So once in a while, it'll, it'll come on the, on the speaker and we're just going at it in the living room and everyone else is like, Oh, you guys are a bunch of freaks, but uh, <laughs> that's good. I get it. Uh, what's your favorite go-to tech right now? What do you find you're using the most in tech? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not, I have a love hate relationship. I don't actually love tech. I think they're tools. Um, you know, I've got a really nice drill. I like my drill. Um, I also have a really nice, you know, computer that does the things I need it to do. Um, but I think the tech for tech state, I'm not fond of, uh, tech that helps us do the things that we want to do with people more. Great. So I actually think I like my drill more than I like any of the tech that I have. Awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. I love it. Um, who's the most influential person in your life? Oh, wow. That's a big one. Yeah. You can't ask these as quick fire questions. This no, is that's why I said they're quick fire questions, but not necessarily quick fire answers. I think, I think um, the, the first person that comes to mind is my wife. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Good. Good deal. So I, I just have one more. What would you recommend to me as I want to move towards centering my pedagogy 
in my practice in a more inclusive way? I know that's a big question and you don't know a lot about my background, but I'm always looking to build into my repertoire new things that I want to try and, and stretch my boundaries a bit. So what would you recommend? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a quip and it's about as useless as it could be, but I would say question everything, even, even in hard sciences, even in the trades, there are opportunities for innovation. Uh, You know, just because this is the way you've always done it doesn't mean there isn't an innovative way to think about it. I mean, people who have the dexterity and tools and know that there's a right tool for the job. I, I think that that's almost like ballet to me when that works nicely. So I, I just, I wish everybody had the space to question things, to, to innovate and to find, find ways to make it work differently and better and innovatively and creatively. Yeah. Play. Oh, that's cool. I will. Thank you. Thanks again, Jess, for taking the time. It's been a, it's been a fun hour. I can't believe it's been an hour already, but uh, thank you for taking I'm long-winded. <laughs> oh, it's good. It's good. It's perfect. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. That was fun. It. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate you having me. It's You're welcome. An honor. A long way from here.